It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 45, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Elizabeth Henderson. Elizabeth was a founder of Peacework Organic CSA, one of the oldest CSAs in the United States, where she farmed for over 30 years. She's also the author of the definitive work on CSA farming, Sharing the Harvest, and she's been involved in any number of other initiatives in the food movement, from shaping the National Organic Foods Production Act to her work with the Agricultural Justice Project. In this movement, especially in the Northeastern United States, it can be hard to turn anywhere without seeing Elizabeth's handprints. And indeed, this is true around the country and even internationally. When we recorded this interview, she had just returned from the sixth gathering of Urgency, the International Network for Community Supported Agriculture, which took place in Beijing, China this year. Elizabeth reflects on the shape and texture of the international CSA movement and the resurgence of small-scale organic farming in China. And we dig into the mechanics of how her CSA farm accommodated having members and children as part of the harvest activities, the farm's transition to new partners, and the farm's relationship to the Genesee Land Trust. It was an honor to have Elizabeth on the show, and I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Elizabeth Henderson, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. One of the really fun things I get to do with this show is is talk to my heroes, the people that I've, you know, the, the when I was getting started in farming, I was looking at going, wow, that's really cool. And and who I've been able to to watch over the years. And I don't know, I just, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for making time today. Well, thank you for having me. I loved it the time you and I did a workshop together on CSA. And we were able to get a lot of humor out of the contrast between the way you do it. You did it and the way I do it. <laughs> Well, and I and I have to say, a lot of the reflection that I've done on on CSA since that time, and I'm thinking that may have been seven or eight years ago now. Yeah. Um, my CSA was so focused on you know selling boxes and efficiency, and and really, um, I think didn't do nearly enough to emphasize that community aspect and. Well, in that piece that I think you hold so close and and so well of of the the socially revolutionary nature uh, that potentially exists with a CSA, you know, we were very much selling boxes of produce and hoping there was a community that went along with it, and and I think that in the end that that didn't do us any favors and it didn't really prove to be a a, a truly sustainable model for us. Those are hard choices for a farm to make because the building and the alternative social vision isn't efficient. And our harvesting, having members come out and harvest with us, um, is definitely not an efficient professional harvesting session. But the educational uh, benefits are enormous. Well, and I think there's the education piece, but there's also that that community building piece, that part where, where your customers have a lot of loyalty to you. And, and I mean, we certainly had, I'd say between 10 and 20% of our members who would have been with us through thick and thin. 
Mm. But it was a it was a small slice of our CSA population. And when I've worked with other CSAs that have have followed more of what I call the customer subscription agriculture model rather than the community supported agriculture subscription model, I think that that 10 to 20 percent is is pretty, pretty common when you're when you're dealing with folks who are really selling a product rather than. I don't even know what you'd call it. I know sometimes I, back in the early days when I talked about selling CSA, people would get frustrated with that idea and um, it's not selling. It's, it's when you're, when you're creating this relationship that happens to involve money and vegetables. Honestly, I've always tried to sell CSA is that joining a CSA is more than just money and vegetables, that it's becoming part of, of a movement to transform and regenerate the planet. Not everybody gets it. Sometimes it takes numbers a few years to understand what I'm talking about. But it makes the CSA a different kind of thing than just another way of marketing the vegetables. I was just reading a story online about how you discovered community-supported agriculture. And it, it felt to me like that that related to some of this. Yeah, right. I mean, that was the first time I saw a CSA kind of thing in action the summer that I spent in France. Um, I had friends there who were French Maoists, and two of the comrades grew some vegetables that summer, which they delivered to the doorsteps of um, members of their Maoist cell and also some of their friends. So we sublet an apartment from one of the, the Maoists, and along with it came those vegetables. Uh, and that seemed to me like a really nice way of uh, a community having a way to feed themselves and also um, support a small farm. The interesting thing about that was those young Maoists had no connection with a local farming community in France in that in that area of uh, um and uh, and um, just where that farm was. And the first CSA that started was actually Les Olivades, the farm of Denise and Danielle um, Lyon. And it was just a few miles from the Maoist farm, but they had they never heard of it. And the French learned about CSA by their daughter coming to New York hearing about just food, getting a tour of Roxbury, and then insisting that her parents come over and have a tour of Roxbury. In 2001, they did that and went home and started what was then named AMAP, an Association for the Maintenance of Peasant Agriculture. <laughs> and I just learned on the um, International CSA Conference from uh, another um, AMAP farmer named Denise that uh, they were actually building on 20 years of work by the French Peasant Federation, which had taken the word peasant, which in France had come to be as derogatory as it is in the United States today. I mean, if you call someone a peasant, you're not giving them a compliment at all. And very few American farmers would want to call themselves peasants. But what the French small-scale, family-scale, and organic, agroecological farmers were able to do 
pursue their work in the Federation and under the leadership of people like um, José Bosé, who, uh, you know, attacked McDonald's and uh, really led an attack on what they call malbouf, which means evil food. <laughs> um, fast food that's made out of really cheap ingredients. The, the French Federation of Peasants was able to give peasant a new meaning in, in France so that when uh, CSA was started there, that first map quickly turned into probably over 2,000 all over France. People, who, consumers in France who wanted to support the idea of a peasant agriculture. But that didn't just you know, happen out of thin air. It was due to the work of um, hundreds of French small-scale farmers defining what peasant agriculture means and then finding a way to um, connect with consumers to support it. I really like that story, Elizabeth, because it, it seems to me like it, it kind of um, it reflects a lot of the work that you've done of kind of always going back and saying, what, what's the bigger picture of what we're doing here? You know, why, well, what are we trying to accomplish in, in the larger sense? Um, and I, I think that's, that's something that you've, well, you've just consistently come back to in your work. Um, you know, and I think the, the book that you, that you wrote with Robin Van Ann sharing the harvest reflects that. And, um, and I think it's certainly reflected in, in the way that you guys had set up your CSA, um, at, at Peacework Organic Farm. And I want to circle back to that, but I also want to, I want to continue a little bit on this arc of, and pardon me while I butcher the French, but Urgency <laughs> International CSA Conference that you just got back from in China. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that, that conference and what that experience was like for you? Yes, I'd be really happy to. Um, I am the honorary president of Urgency, which is an international CSA network. And when it started, it wasn't really that very international. There were French members and a few Americans and some Japanese KK farmers. But over the 10 years of its existence, it has truly become um, international. There were people at the Beijing conference, which is the sixth Urgency uh, conference. They're held every two or three years. Um, there were people from every continent. There are now CSAs in Australia, in Latin America, in, in Africa, many in different countries of Asia, as well as most of the European countries, the United States, and Canada. There were, I think, 60 sponsored guests who were um, these CSA farmers or organizers from all over the globe who came together for the international conference, as well as the people who came from all over China for their seventh annual CSA, national CSA conference in Beijing. There were something like eight or 900 Chinese people. Um, so it was really a, a big conference, two conferences going on at the same time with a lot of overlap. So for the international sessions, there would often be many Chinese people in the audience and some of us from the international Conference went to some of the Chinese sessions, 
for the big sessions, there was um, instantaneous translation going on. But when I went as kind of an invited observer of a Chinese session on how you do the production uh, for a CSA, I had a personal uh, translator whispering the English in my ears as the Chinese people spoke it. So it was a great coming together. And for me, uh, finding CSA in China has been a, a total eye-opener to uh, a phenomenon that's going on in the world that I had no conception of. And my impression of organic agriculture in China was that it was very top-down, that the government saw organic as a good market opportunity for Chinese farms and thus organized some of them to uh, do certified organic production to ship to the United States and Europe. But the CSA movement is bottoms up. It is grassroots. I've now been to two of the national CSA conferences and it's really just like being at a CSA conference in the United States, except that everybody is Chinese. <laughs> and they're speaking in Chinese and I need a translator, but they're the same kind of young, excited, intense people um, getting a college education, but going back to work in the countryside. And in China, that's a, a bigger deal than it is here, I can tell you, because the split between country and city is much more stark than it is in, in our culture. So the first CSA conference I went to there was, I think it was their fourth or fifth. Um, I was able to kind of use it in because I'd gone to the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movement Organic World Conference in South Korea. And the Chinese CSA conference was immediately after. And I was invited by Xi'an, who was one of the organizers, because she had translated my book, Sharing a Harvest, into Chinese. This young woman not only translated my book, but she translated Farmers of 40 Centuries by Jiao uh, King and Xiao Money. Farmers of 40 Centuries, which if people listening to this haven't read, is really a must-read book. It was written in about 1911, I think, 1910-11, by an American um, extension agent who got to go to China and tour the traditional farms. And it's his close observations and appreciation of the highly ecological, uh, totally recycling, totally integrated, small-scale farms that Chinese people were using to feed their very dense population. And that traditional agriculture has been uh, under siege in China by the, the, the decision of the leadership in Chinese to invest in Western-style, more industrial agriculture. But because the, the peasant network in China is much more dense than here, I don't think the big-scale farms are nearly as big as what we've got in the United States. And there's always this residue of the 
the peasant population that's running those farms. So rather than one huge piece, a big farm may be an agglomeration of many small pieces all doing the same thing together. <laughs> so if you can imagine, instead of one vast field that's under one management that has corn and soybeans in rotation, it's a vast field, but it's actually like 20 or 30 small farms that are doing the same thing together. We saw a, a cherry co-op that is like that. I believe 53 small cherry orchards that were all planted at the same time, all growing the same varieties of cherries, marketing together, but each family maintaining its own separate holding. So large-scale agriculture in China is quite different. But anyway, to get back to the CSA thing, peasants all over China have worked tremendously hard to send their children to the university to get an education so that they can break away from being a peasant and lead a modern life, get a good job in the city and marry well and educate their children. Right. And what's happening now is this movement of young people who are getting their education and then going back to the village to do something that looks much more like traditional Chinese agriculture doing the CSAs. And some of those youngsters haven't grown up farming at all, but some of them are uh, grew up on a farming family and are insisting on coming back to farm with their parents or grandparents in their villages. And that's what the CSA movement is about, about connecting consumers to support that um, redevelopment of the countryside. Uh, and that is connected in China with a whole wing of the Chinese Communist Party that has a very eloquent declaration of the need for ecological civilization. So there's a part of the Communist Party, at least, that's observing, that is the very top leadership in China, that's observing this world reconstruction effort um, with great interest because like today in Beijing, I heard on the news, they're not letting children out of out of the building because the air quality is so bad. Their crisis of advanced industrialization has, has just gotten totally out of hand. And they need to do something different because whatever kind of agriculture you're doing, the sky is full of particulate matter from uh, fossil fuels and coal. Um, you're not going to be able to grow anything. Right. Not much is growing today in uh, the Beijing area farms, and there are on the, there's a circle of farms on the outskirts of Beijing, which I was surprised to discover too. But anyway, CSA in China is this grassroots movement, so it's really encouraging to see they are in many ways the vanguard of rural redevelopment and uh, ecological. Uh, thinking and transformation for China, which in these days of the discussions in Paris of what to do for the to save the planet, um, what they're doing in China it is really critical, and I was so happy to see that it that it is underway. Does the movement in China have a similar 
breadth to what the CSA movement has here in the United States. I mean, where you've got smaller, I'd say very socially, ecologically minded farms, similar to yours, Elizabeth. And then, you know, contrasted with these much larger, uh, you know, 2,000, 3,000 member CSAs that that really are following um, something that much more resembles that customer subscription model. Do you see that kind of breadth in China or, or has it, at least so far, tended to stay focused on the smaller, the more the more community oriented operations? Well, it's hard for me to answer your question, Chris, because I see such a small slice of what's going on in China. And I'm far from an expert in Chinese agriculture or culture or anything. I can only tell you what I've seen. And the farms that I have seen, like Shared Harvest, and uh, Little Donkey, the CSA farm, they are a blend that is different from what we see here. Little Donkey Farm, which Xi'an started in, I think, 2009, is the first CSA farm in China, or so declared as CSA. And it's a mixture of community gardens and uh, growing food for boxes. So about half of the members rent pieces of land on the farm so that they can grow vegetables for themselves. And they come out to the farm eight times a week to take care of their little plots. And the other half buy shares from the group of farmers, half of which are college graduates who are interns training to do this agriculture, and half of which are village peasants who've been doing agriculture all their lives. So the picture is quite different from anything we have here. but it definitely is connected with community building and with rebuilding trust between city dwellers who don't have any land of their own and the people who are providing them with food. Which the Chinese are, have become enormously distrustful of their mainstream food supplies. There have been repeated horrible scandals where people have been poisoned and even died from eating food. And so the now close to 300 million middle-class people in China, enough people to fill a lot of CSAs, are looking for connection with a farmer they can trust as their source of food. So the farmer's markets and the CSAs are really doing a great business in signing people up who are hungry for all of the things that a CSA offers to them. And I, I just need to add something else. I had a conversation with a woman whose uh, father was sent to the countryside during the um, what they called the Great Leap Forward, where intellectuals were kind of exiled to live in villages um, under Mao. And it was a pretty traumatic period in many ways in, in the development of Chinese communism. But this young woman in, grew up in a village because her father was in exile there. 
and she developed these close attachments to the peasants of that village. So she has set up the CSA to help support them. And in that case, it's only 30 families, mainly very elderly people in this isolated village. She drives two hours to the nearest city once a week to deliver their shares. I haven't heard anything quite like that in the United States. Our main translator during this conference is a woman named Caroline Merrifield, and she is writing her dissertation on CSAs in China. So in a few years, we'll all have a really interesting book to read because she's had the opportunity to travel around and study a lot of the CSAs more closely than, than I could. Now, there were as you said, more than just Chinese folks here, there were CSA farmers from all over the world. What sort of themes are you seeing in CSA from an international perspective? I mean, are there are there common challenges or or common successes that, that folks are realizing? Well, from what I can tell, what we all have in common is that we're using what's internationally called agroecological methods. Some are certified organic, many are not certified organic, but the methods are basically those of organic agriculture where we're growing cover crops, making compost, rotating the crops, avoiding the use of toxic materials, totally shunning genetically modified organisms. So that's something that we all have in common. And most of the CSA farms are on the small side from five or six acres to 100 or 200 acres, but not much bigger than that. And in all cases, it's a direct connection. It's a direct sale between a farmer or a group of farmers and eaters, often in a city that's at some distance from 20 minutes to an hour or even a few hours drive from the farm. So that that seems to be the, the common link. But then all the details of exactly how you do the distribution and how often communication takes place and what method of communication, whether you have a newsletter or a blog or a website or uh, the Chinese use, instead of Facebook, they have WeChat. (laughs) I want to sign up for that and see if I can get on their wavelengths too. Um, All of those specific details of whether the food is packaged and washed or not vary very much from country to country and region to region. So the Japanese tend not to wash the vegetables. Ah, the Teike farmers who have now been doing it since 1975, so they were really the first. You get the vegetables pretty much as they are in your um, TK box. And in Japan, there's very, very strong consumer involvement because there are clubs of consumers that support the TK. I was uh, invited to Japan about 10 years ago because they were having a, a crisis that younger families weren't joining their TK uh, farms and they wanted my advice so I could figure that out. But I actually did perceive something that wasn't as um, noticeable to them because they were entrenched in it, is that their consumer clubs were dominated by women my age. I'm 72. 
um, who had been members of the Peke Farms for 30, 40 years. And some of these women were most eloquent and fierce defenders of small family-scale organic agriculture. But for a young woman to join the club with these older women, it wasn't always that easy. So I think that was part of their struggle, and the schedules were set up for the um, older women who often were not working and didn't have small children anymore. In uh, France, there doesn't seem to be um, a lot of member involved in picking and and distributing the food. That's mainly done by the farmer crews. But there's very strong emotional detachment attachment to uh, a map as a source of traditional French diet, which is very, very important in French culture. The first CSA in Chile was founded by a young woman, Claudia Cusio, and she was able to come to China. She learned how to do CSA by coming to my farm uh, in uh, 2009. And then she went back and recreated her own version of that, the salt side of Santiago. So she has a lot of member involvement in her CSA, and she's kind of setting the model for her country. So around the planet, there are many different ways of doing it. And that's part of what's so exciting, that CSA isn't an orthodoxy. Nobody certifies it. Nobody dictates that you have to do it this way or that way. It's a concept of the direct connection between a group of eaters and one or several pieces of land. And after that, you can do it however you want. You know, here in, in Madison, where I'm living now, we um, we actually have a fair, it's the Fair Share CSA Coalition. It used to be the Madison Area CSA Coalition. And and you know, they've actually have set up some some standards for CSA. And I think what it means as well as I think they require you to be certified organic. Yes, that's correct. Are there is is that is that sort of collection of CSA farms, the, a more formal association, something that that you're seeing in other places? Well, there's something quite similar over the border in Canada. Iquiter, uh, over the past 15 years, has built up. CSAs in uh, the province of Quebec from zero to, I think they now have 105, and they require organic certification. In California, uh, CAF, the Community Association for Family Farmers, I believe is what CAF stands for, they have a California CSA network, and they're... um, Certification is not required at all, nor is sharing the risk. The California CSA farms are much more like your subscription box scheme, and they have told me that west of the of the Rockies, you just can't do um, that kind of uh, community involvement. Although Live Power Community Farm in Kogoro has been doing it since, I think, in 1990, where they have a high level of member commitment. Um, that's a biodynamic farm. They have close associations with the Waldorf School and you know, the 
the higher level of understanding of some of the biodynamic uh, eaters of food. So I think we're all over the place as far as uh, requiring specific characteristics. And in, in France, they are using their peasant federation definition of peasant agriculture for their basis. And they have excluded the use of toxic um, uh, pesticides. Um, it's basically organic agriculture. Although, um, they don't require organic certification. And one of the main certifiers in France is actually a participatory guarantee system, Nature Progrès, which is one of the oldest organic organizations um, in Europe. Instead of having a third party certification, they have farmers inspecting one another. Much more like the Certified Naturally Grown program here. Except that the Certified Naturally Grown program uses the standards of the National Organic Program, whereas Nathalie Progrès and every other participatory guarantee system that I've heard of, the members write their own standards and then they enforce them through education on their members. So our one example of the, of the PBS in the United States is, is a little different. Elizabeth, in, in our pre-show chat, you told me that there were some really cool things that you wanted to share about the conference in China um, you know, that, that you really found to be, I think the, the words you used were wonderful and surprising. So <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about, about those? Well, I have been to a lot of conferences around the United States and other parts of the world. So it's hard to surprise me, but the Chinese really did. Um, they opened their conference with a very beautiful series of uh, presentations of Chinese culture. Um, they had a music a quartet playing traditional Chinese music very, very beautifully while we watched a video that um, a hand was drawing scenes from a very traditional-looking farm the houses, the people, the crops. Um, and it was very artistically done. And then, as soon as that was over, they switched to this music that could have been like, I don't know, the introduction to the, uh, um, what's the right word, you know, the, to the Hollywood uh, prizes. Um, and as each speaker that there would be this blast of this brash commercial music so that when I got up to give my speech, I really had to restrain myself from getting up there and kicking my legs like I was part of their you know, a Hollywood musical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to speak right after uh, Professor Wen, who is one of the philosophical guru of the Chinese movement. And he's a man who has been through um, a whole series of efforts to keep the Chinese peasantry alive and empowered. Uh, and he sees CSA as a really important way of um, 
giving power back to the peasants in a culture you know, under you know the latest regime in China. The peasants have, have really been just robbed, as we are here in this country, of of our land and uh, our our ability to keep farms going and and rural communities vital. Uh, and he's a, a very charismatic figure who obviously and takes great delight in being a teacher and working with young people and is is very inspiring to them. So it was a great honor to share the podium with him. And then at the end of the CSA conference, there were, you know, a whole series of workshops where we tried to make sure that each each workshop had people from widely contrasting cultures and experience. So that made it a lot of fun. So my friend Erin Bullock, who farms in near Rochester, was on a panel of new you farmers, together with a young Frenchman and my friend Claudia from Chile, talking about how you start a farm. And I was on a panel on budgeting and marketing for CSA, together with uh, someone from Japan and uh, Austria and uh, a new CSA network that sprung up in Brazil. I mean, Brazil is actually started by a man who's doing it as artwork. <laughs> so his sort of mental space is like way out there in the kind of hippie hippie land um, in, a, in a surprising way. But he has managed to help get 60 CSAs started in Brazil. So anyway, the, the, the series of workshops were all um, very exciting, the ones that I was able to participate in. And then the, the closing ceremony, the Chinese used again for the organization that they're doing, they had an announcement of their new CSA coalition. And I later learned that under the Chinese um, government and regulations, there are hardly any civil society organizations that are on a national scale. The government doesn't especially like that. So the CSA coalition is registered in Beijing, but they are welcoming members from all over the country. And they had CSA farmers from all corners of the country come together uh, on the stage and read together a declaration that they had written about the meaning of this CSA coalition, and then they um, uh, unveiled their new logo, which was a big plaque that they held up together. And then they had CSA farmers from all over the country each bring a sample of their soil, and they filled up a long glass rod with these samples of different colored soils and seeds from the different farms. So it was a really splendid cylinder. And then they held that up as kind of a symbol of bringing together people from all over the country but to celebrate the importance of soil and seed. And I thought that was a beautiful ceremony, and I would like us to replicate it here. I'm thinking maybe next year in New York, we could have soil from all over New York State and, and do that.
And then they invited the international um, CSA people to come and do something similar. Throughout our conference, we had been working on a declaration of uh, kind of like basic principles of CSA. So a group of people read this short declaration together and stood, you know, and, and shared it with the audience. So having that kind of charter or declaration is something that's much more in the forefront for people in both Europe and China and in, in Japan. KK has for since 1975, they had the 10 principles of KK. That's something that we might think about having here in the United States too. I'm curious on that note, what do you see as being the principles? I mean, if, if somebody said, you know, Elizabeth, we want you to be part of, of writing this, this charter, or these basic principles of CSA for the United States, what, what would you want to see in that? Well, I guess I would want to see um, the kind of dedication to regenerating the soil and the agriculture along the lines of, you know, there's now this regeneration international based on the Rodale work on regenerative organic agriculture. So some sort of definition like that, that we will um, treat the soil with enormous respect, that we will see ourselves as part of the processes of nature, um, that we will build community. But, but CSA can only be used as they've now made a regulation in California. If it's farm-based, it could be a group of farms, but it can't be some aggregator who is putting together shares and you know, doing something that looks like a CSA, but really isn't based on a genuine connection with a particular piece of land or a bunch of pieces of land. So I guess those are the things like that direct sale. And that it's, it is a way of regenerating the countryside farmers and eaters of their food working together to create respect for um, its basic need in, in human life to eat. Uh, it's our closest connection to the planet, working with nature to grow food. Um, and CSA is a way of doing that. There are other ways, but for CSA, that is very basic. That's great. Elizabeth there, I'm going to stop and get a word from our sponsors for the show, the folks that make it possible to do it here, and then we'll be right back. Okay. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. In the wild, where our crop plants ancestors evolved their microbial partnerships, plants are provided with nutrients from the soil through the work of partner microbes in their employ. Wide-ranging roots reach an abundant supply of nutrients and microbes, even in less than ideal conditions. And now that you've gone and stuck that seed in a little tiny container, it has to get everything it needs right there in a few cubic centimeters of soil. By providing compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients, Vermont Compost ensures that your plants have what they need consistently. And now, through December 21st, Vermont Compost pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price, with the best shipping options, delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. 
vermontcompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers and spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. And even though we owned a four-wheeled tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled important jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right. And we're back with Elizabeth Henderson from uh, Peacework Organic Farms and author of Sharing the Harvest. Elizabeth, I, I really appreciated your statement of principles about about CSA and kind of what what you would see as being those those core values that CSA would have. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into farming and how, how you ended up in, as being part of the CSA movement? Well, I had um, gone off to academia and become an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literatures. And then my husband was killed in a car crash, and I just did not want to go on with that as my way of life. And I lived in a house for a while with people who had a garden. I had absolutely never gardened at all. My parents were city people. Uh, they didn't know the lawn. They hired someone to do that. Their idea of being outside was playing tennis. That was great. Um, but they, they just weren't, you know, nature lovers. But they realized that I was very, very unhappy growing up in suburbia. So they sent me to Putney Summer Work Camp, which was on a farm. And I worked in the um, cow barn, helping, you know, the cows and wash out the uh, milk cooler every day and discovered rural America. I had no idea that it existed until I was you know, a 15-year-old at, at that camp. Uh, so I did not come from a farming background and generations back, there probably was no one in my family who farmed. And when I told my parents that I was going to move to a farm and was thinking about farming. Back up for a second, I'm an only child and my parents had me a little bit late in life and just doted on me totally. They were wonderful, loving parents. So when I said this to them, they took this deep breath and they said, well, Lizzie, if that's what you want to do, it's... It, uh, <clears throat> It, it must be a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real stretch for them. But eventually I was even able to get my mother to drive a tractor. She would not get down on her hands and knees and do any stoop labor. And the first time she looked at one of our freshly cut lettuces, she said, why is it so dirty? <laughs> and <I> <laughs> Ma, you notice it grows right in the soil, right on top of the soil. So my mother has always been, always in my mind when I think about the well-educated consumer and how much they know and how much they are just 
they just don't notice at all. Wow. So I started farming, in, you know, I moved out to a farm in 1979, 80, with some friends. Uh, we bought an old fallen down dairy farm in Gill, Massachusetts. It had been uh, a very rich place, but the wife died and the old guy who owned it um, had become a little bit crazy, I think. And was not able to maintain it himself, so it was sold off. The buildings were burned down anyway, and it was kind of a mess. So we started from scratch and we built it. And I started from scratch learning how to farm because I already had a son. And at that time, there really weren't schools you could go to to study organic agriculture. And there weren't very many places where you could even be an intern. So I learned my organic farming from having toured rural areas in France, read a lot about French organic farming, and also read Farmers of 40 Centuries and the writings of Sir Albert Howard and Lady Valfour. Um, and then by doing it myself and, and learning the hard way, um, a good way I found to learn things was I, you know, I identified farmers whose work I admired. I'd just go help out for a few days on their farm, work for free, and just absorb as much as I could. So the Harlow Farm is someplace where I learned a lot there in Vermont. Um, and then um, I was part of a of a, a group who were all members of NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. Uh, that started back in 1971, and NOFA and NAFCA are new, you know, which is the oldest, but I think we both started about the same time. In the early 80s, I was going to NOFA summer conferences, which were people from all over the Northeast. We decided that there were enough people that we should try and make state chapters. So a group of us in Massachusetts decided to start a chapter and also to start organic certification. And at that time, there was already um, some fairly significant fraud in the marketplace. Packers who were buying conventional carrots and then repacking them in bags, et cetera, organic. So we were somehow convinced that certification would be a way to reduce fraud. And this group was a study group. We started meeting in about 1981, shortly after I, I moved to the farm. And we met once a month and we read things together and helped one another learn more about how to be a good organic farmer. We visited one another's farm, another farms and we also did some joint marketing. Nancy Gallon and Richard Stander were in that group. Ian Robb who was the first farmer at Brookside Farm before Dan Kaplan took it over and a few other people. Uh, Amy Chickering joined it. She eventually became uh, my partner at uh, East Coast Farm in, in New York State many years later. But that experience of studying together and learning together was very valuable. And then we started organic certification in Massachusetts. So my farming has been certified organic since 1985. 
And I am separated from my first farm partner there. And uh, I was rode off to farm in New York State at Ray's Valley Farm to farm with David Stern. And it was when I moved there that it seemed to me we needed to do something better for our marketing. And David and I agreed that we wanted to make our full living from organic farming. Uh, but already in 1988, 89, we could see that there were a few big farms, Cal Organics in California, that were able to undercut us in the marketplace. Um, right. Wetman's store in uh, they're now, I think, in about five states, but they're originally from the Rochester, Canandaigua area of New York. They made a little organic section back in the in the early 90s, but they didn't bother to refrigerate the produce that they bought from us or they put a mister on it. So we would bring them stuff that looked beautiful in the morning, and then by late in the day, it looked like it had been to Siberia and back, and they really <laughs> were not invested in doing the organic stuff well. Uh, they've now made a big commitment to organic, which is great, but, uh, it was a rocky history with them. So finding good markets um, was a challenge. Uh, Rose Valley sold to the co-ops in Rochester, Syracuse, and Ithaca, which meant long drives in three different directions. We sold to some local restaurants. And I had gotten to know Robin Van and and heard about the idea of CSA and suggested that we try it, particularly because there was a group in the city of Rochester called the Politics of Food and headed up by a woman named Allison Clark, an organization that was dedicated to urban-rural connections and helping people achieve what's now called food security. So we teamed up with Allison to start our own CSA. This was in the winter of 88-89. And really, no one had heard of it at all in our area or in most places of the world. Um, but we were able to put out a little crude poster outside the food co-op, and we attracted basically two kinds of people. Um, there was a club uh, called Heal Human Ecology Action League, people who were chemically sensitive, who really wanted to get organically grown food. And then there were people who were activists of different kinds who grasped the, the concept that there was a farming crisis going on in this country and that something needed to be done to keep local organic farms in business. And becoming a member of a farm seemed like a good idea to them. And when we met, we proposed that the idea that to make it run, everybody participate. And that was where you could keep the prices reasonable and reduce the burden on the farmers. Our farm was a whole hour from Rochester. But everybody agreed that they would take turns coming out and helping us harvest and that the members would oversee the distribution so that the farmers wouldn't have to make the trip to town to do that. So that was the pattern that we set up. And at the end of the year, our first um, end of the season dinner, 
people really love the farm work. And after another year, the farm, we first year we were like 31 members, and then we had 45 members, and then the farm proposed that we double the membership to 90. Um, the members said, okay, let's do that, but let's continue doing it the same way. Let's not hire someone to be the, the CSA coordinator. Let's go on doing it ourselves. So the people who were on the original core group, I later learned, I didn't know this at all, because I didn't know these people, you know, I had recently moved to the area, were all um, really committed activists, activists for peace and justice and the environment. So since that time, whenever I go to a demonstration in the Rochester area for either peace or justice or to save the environment in some way, it's always people who are in my city. So that makes me feel very good. I'm feeding the right people. <laughs> so these were not couch potatoes. These were people who were really organizers. And so helping organize the quotas of the CSA was something they were skilled at doing. And Alison Clark um, is a lifelong organizer and networker. She helped us create the core group, recruited people for the initial core group, and then suggested things like for every job, there'll be at least two people trained so that it doesn't overburden anybody. So the newsletter had two editors, and we had two people doing the bookkeeping, and as many people, like eight or nine people overseeing distribution so that they could take turns and no one would have more than three or four times in the 26-week season when they were overseeing the distribution. So it was well organized and of course it got to be as many as 28, 29 people because of all those different jobs. And not everyone came to the meetings. Each sector like distribution had to send a representative, um, but there were always enough people to administer the project and take the burden off the farmers. And it wasn't until years later that I learned about Temple Wilton Farm, which was one of the first two TFAs, and they are still going in uh, New Hampshire. And that farm is really even more radical. They don't have a price for their shares. At Peacework, we added up what we would get if we sold all the contents of the shares at the farmer's market and then divided that by the number of weeks, and that's how we got our initial price. Um, at Temple Wilton, the farm presents the members with their budget. They actually have a meeting attended by all of their members, and that's the thing that I don't know how they pull off every year, but they seem to. And the members put in bids as to how much they can pay. And if the bids add up to the budget, that's it. People pay radically different amounts and actually take different amounts of food depending upon how much they need. So it's truly like communism. You give according to your needs and you get according to your needs. You give according <laughs> to your abilities and get according to your needs. And they are still doing it that way. Uh, and they have got their annual meeting down to a 45-minute sprint because everybody's trained in how it works. But when I did learn about that, we, 
we started sharing our farm budget with our members. And that had a very dramatic impact on them because our members didn't understand how the farm economics worked. And they learned a lot from seeing our budget. They learned how little David and I were earning, for one thing. They learned that we didn't have health insurance, that we didn't have a retirement fund. So the members of the core group proposed that they that we raise the price of the CSA shares so that there would be uh, enough money for us to buy health insurance and have at least $1,000 a year set aside for retirement. That's pretty incredible. When you think about food in our culture and, and how much, well, like anything else in our culture, people are always looking for a bargain. And to have people be willing to pay more is a pretty radical concept. Well, I think a lot of the members were actually embarrassed because they came out to the farm, they were courageous, they knew how hard we worked, how much harder than they worked. <laughs> and here they learned that we were making as money than they did. And they valued the food that we were giving them. So that's why they did it. We also were able, by presenting the budget that way, to charge on a sliding scale. So we offered people the possibility of paying uh, about $100 less than the average needed to cover the budget, or $100 more, as long as added together, it covered the budget. And so we've always been able to have lower income people and higher income people as members of our CSA. And that's been important to us at the farm. We couldn't really afford to give scholarships, but the CSA could do it by having the wealthy members give scholarships to the low-income members. So you have people coming out and working at the farm. What kinds of adjustments or accommodations have you made in order to make that work? I've always farmed together with other people. So for the past, since we set up Peaceworks Farm, it's been Greg Palmer and then his wife, Amy, joined us. And then we had a younger partner for a while who unfortunately uh, left for places where social life was a little more active than in Rain County, New York. <laughs> um, so the three of us assessed one of the crops that we think anybody can learn how to pick pretty quickly and one of the crops that we need to pick ourselves. So we would cut the broccoli. We had to cut the um, summer squash because you need to do that at least every other day or it becomes, you know, baseball bats. Um, but something like making a bunch of kale or Swiss chard, most normal people can learn to do that in a short period of time. Children really can't be asked to read because hardly any of them ever can tolerate doing it. But they love digging potatoes, digging carrots. It's really thrilling for them to see the carrots come out of the soil and help put them together as bunches. And having children out there and we'll figure it out, and after a while, could see which were the jobs that were really good for them. That children love picking uh, cherry tomatoes, 
And we would joke about how we have to weigh your children when they first come to the farm so that you know how many tomatoes they ate when they go home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the the number is never an amount to worry about. How many children do meaningful work, even for a very small portion of the time, is so important. There's so few opportunities in our culture where that happens for children. So having a harvest morning with the members, um, even though it was vastly less efficient than, say, your farm was, Chris, that was one of the things that I laughed about, that, you know, when you described, like, the time study man, you're going to pick so many bunches in so many minutes. Um, we weren't doing that. It was more leisurely and a lot of conversation and um, people sort of wandering off or getting drinks or having to go, you know, the outhouse or whatever. Um, but that community building and, and educational part just meant a lot. So we sacrificed efficiency for other qualities. You know, so very careful to make sure the you know, farming area is safe. You know, we're on the, you know, um, no rusty nails sticking out, doors carefully labeled as the places you can't go in, total um, prohibition on children getting on equipment. They were allowed to sit on a tractor seat when the tractor was in the barn, uh, not running, and a farmer was observing. Uh, so having a, you know, a strict safety regimen is important. All those years, the worst thing that ever happened to anybody was a bee sting. We never had knock on wood come knocking on my head a serious accident of any kind with any of the members. I would think that having the harvest be a leisurely process would be really stressful. I I mean, I've worried about getting the work done anyways. And and I can Right. And, and I can hear you laughing because when I say that, I, I'm going like, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, like harvest wasn't stressful for me trying to get stuff done as quickly as possible. But didn't you worry about simply that there was X amount of work to be done and Y amount of time to get it done in? And 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 here we are talking about, you know, Chinese restaurants in Rochester. <laughs> of course I worried and tried to structure it so that we got enough of the picking done in advance, that there was an amount that the group of people could achieve in the morning, in the four hours that we had. And it's true, sometimes there was a rush at the last minute. And both Annie and I suffer from not being so great at math. (laughs) So making sure we had the right number of bunches that would add up, you know, is sometimes stressful. But that was sort of part of the fun of it, too, where things became wildly chaotic at the end of the morning, packing things into people's cars and people running in different directions, and then it would all sort of settle down and we'd clean up and start over again. Like running a restaurant, you know? Yeah. Um, you can be. You can. You can prepare for that and think it through. So that's what what I tried to do. One of the things that I remember seeing in in your slideshow, Elizabeth, was that you guys had even gone so far as to seed down the paths between the beds of vegetables. Is that still something that you're doing? 
Nope. As soon as I retired from full-time farming, Greg and Emmy started throwing all of that up. <laughs> um, there are benefits and, and drawbacks to doing that. Um, having the, the grass strips between the beds allows you to get on them right away after a rain. You can even drive a tractor right after a rain. And the way I managed was every bed, and there were like 260 of them, was on its own rotation. And it sounds a little crazy, but it meant that there could be like an early crop of potatoes that was in, not in the potato area where most of the potatoes were, which came in later. Uh, you could have an early bed of carrots. Uh, right. And, but then you have the really annoying chore of mowing all of those strips, and that was a pain in the neck. And sometimes we'd get behind, and the grass would go to feed, and stuff like that. So that's, you know, definitely a drawback. On the other hand, no erosion. And when you plow up the whole field, you can't go on it until the whole field dries out. And right. you manage it in bigger pieces. So all of the potatoes are in one section. And if that section, when you're rotating around, is the, the ground that's a bit lower and there's a lot of rain, your potatoes, all of them, may be quite late. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses of different ways of managing. Greg and Annie certainly changed it after I retired. And there were some advantages and, and some things that I think uh, were not as good. You know, farm transitions are a big topic of conversation now. And you just mentioned you retired. Um, how's that? How's that farm transition going? <laughs> well, for me... It was um, really difficult. My son, though, gave me a really good piece of advice. He said, the first year, make yourself really scarce. And then when you do come back, they'll be happy to see you. So <laughs> I did that. And it was kind of wrenching not to be there all the time. But I would do things like, my house is across the street from the farm. Um, so that's one of the reasons I've spent more time in the city with my significant other, it was just not to be there. <laughs> but I was really grateful that Greg and Amy, who are both very competent, kept the farm going, kept the CSA going. And the land, you know, isn't land that the three of us own. We farm land that's owned by the Genesee Land Trust. And the way that happened was uh, that we were Initially, we rented from this wonderful man named Doug Cry, who was a very committed environmentalist. He farmed this land that he was able to buy because he inherited money from his dad, and he had a herd of buffalo, of bison, 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 because he was part of the effort to save the bison from extinction. But this big, noisy, athletic, a uh, wonderful man developed a headache, and 40 days later, he was dead from uh, brain cancer. It was a, just a devastating experience. And his wife tried to keep up farming 
for a year after he passed away. But it really wasn't her thing. So she offered to sell us the farm. And several members of our group were also members of the land trust, the Jim C. Land Trust uh, Board. And they suggested that we work out a deal with the land trust. And initially, we were going to do something like um, Live Power Community Fund did, the equity trust bought the development rights, paid for the development rights value of their farm, and then the farmers paid for the farm value. But the Genesee Land Trust proposed instead that they just outright buy the whole farm and, that, and then lease it back to us. Okay. And for the lease, we took a lot of clauses from uh, the EF Schumacher Society and from uh, the Community Land Trust kind of uh, leases that um, Community Land Trust typically saved uh, real estate and housing in cities. There are very few of them that are rural. But they work out a deal where the people who get leases own all of the improvements, but not the land under them. So that's what we agree to with the Genesee Land Trust. The Genesee Land Trust owns the land. And our farm business, we formed an LLC, um, owns the buildings and the farm business. They own all of the infrastructure of the farming. And the agreement is that succession will be controlled by the LLC until such time as we say we can't do it. And then the land trust would take over and find someone else to farm. Okay. We have a 25-year rolling lease, which means that every year we have a meeting with the land trust where we re-sign the lease, and it's good for another 25 years. And the farm pays the local real estate tax because we are a for-profit <laughs> business like other farms. Um, but we pay just a small fee to the Genesee Land Trust for um stewarding the land and making sure that we are adhering to the lease. They come out once a year and inspect. And uh, having that annual meeting with them is very valuable because we keep in close touch with the land trust board and they keep in touch with us and we're one of their projects. And we've been able to spread the word to other land trusts and the value of protecting farmland. I like that. So, that that rolling lease idea, I think is a really important one, um, you know, especially for beginning farmers who are getting on to land. You know, a lot of times that's that's a huge concern is, is how do I how do I make the investments? How do I even afford to improve the land that I'm on if I don't know that I'm going to be on it for an extended period of time? And I know that a lot of organic farmers in in our area now have started doing just a three-year rolling lease. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not the 25 year guarantee that you've got, but that idea that every year you're looking out and saying, yes, I'm committing to this piece of land for the next three years. And the owner of the land is also committing to you for the next three years, I think really provides some important security for, for any, any small business, uh, but especially a farm and especially an organic farm that depends on having time to transition to new or transition land to a new organic status. Now, I think three years isn't long enough. I think people should be going for 10-year leases at least. 
what's very exciting is that the land trust the land trust movement is making a bigger commitment these days to helping preserve farms and farmland. So our land trust was one of the first to do this kind of deal, but now there, I heard that at the last um, annual big uh, conference of land trust, a whole day was spent on preserving farmland and working with farms to do that. So I hope that young farmers will look to their local land trust to work with them in some way or other. And I know people cling to the notion of private property, that it's your piece of land and you can do on it what you want. But the reality is, your children may or may not want to take over and farm for you, after you. It may be that it will be other people who will farm it. So it's kind of an illusion to imagine that because you own the property, that will ensure that it will stay in your family. Well, and I like the arrangement that you guys have um, that you just described of a a 25-year rolling lease to an LLC. I mean, that would be something where if, if you sold part of the LLC or brought in new members in the LLC, whether they're family members or whether they're people who've been involved with the farm, then those are the people who inherit the lease by virtue of being part of the, of the organization that, uh, or the corporate body that, that is renting the land. I think that's, that's it. I think it's a, it's a good example of a way to take business structures and structuring agreements with other entities in ways that, that actually foster, uh, good practices. I think a lot of times, you know, now what we're seeing in the Midwest is, yeah, there's, there's nobody wants to come back to the farm. Um, you know, particularly on, on the larger conventional operations, you get parents who die and, and then you're left to just divide up the land and, and it becomes a commodity. And I, I think that our whole arrangement that you've talked about actually probably provides more security in the long term for land than, than just saying, I'm going to own it and I'm going to pass it on to my kids. Well, it certainly protects the land because the land trust has accepted the land under the agreement that it will be it will be managed using ecological methods. We didn't say certified organic. We wrote ecological because we didn't know what might happen with the National Organic Program or certification. But this land will forever in its deed be managed ecologically. And the other thing that, that we did that I think is of interest is that Within our LLC, the whole initial investment came from money that I got from the car crash in which my husband was killed. Greg and Andy didn't have any money to invest. So what we did was we based our budget around the shares that we could sell for the CFA. That would cover the basic salary for Greg and Amy and for me and the basic expenses of running the farm. And in addition to those shares, we sold um, starts in the spring. We sold some of our food to the abundance co-op where our main distribution takes place. We sold other stores. We offered um, extras to our members, so each week when we had more lettuce or more greens or whatever, people could do a weekly order and pay for it as they went. 
and then in the fall, we sell quite a bit of stuff as what we call squirrel bulk. So we encourage our members to squirrel up for the winter by buying 10 or 25 pounds of carrots and potatoes and rutabagas and leeks, etc. for the winter. All of that over-budget money was then divided up among Greg and Amy and me, and we could either take it out of the farm business or reinvest it. So Greg and Amy used their share to buy down my share of the farm business until our shares were equal. So they got they be, they became full owners through sweat equity. And I think that's a really important model. Well, and I think really importantly, not just through saying sweat equity, but by setting up a structure under which that sweat equity was was valued and accounted for. I think that's something that oftentimes happens when people talk about sweat equity as part of an ownership arrangement is it's vague and undefined. And you guys actually did a, it sounds like a pretty, uh, I might say rigid and linear definition of how that was going to work and how you were going to account for it. I really like that. I think it made a big difference that they were able to become full owners in the business without having, you know, money from somewhere else just to their work as farmers. We also agreed in our LLC that it would be a five-year buyout if anyone want, wanted to leave. Um, they are very slowly buying me out. And actually, I think they've only gone through three years of paying me back. Um, and I said, why don't we just stop that and rethink it and just give me CSA shares for the rest of my life <laughs> instead of money. <laughs> How did Greg and Amy become part of the business? Well, I knew Amy from Massachusetts. We were members of NOFA together and we were on the NOFA uh, certification committee. So that's how we got to know one another. And then I moved to New York. And then Amy decided that she was going to take a trip across the country and look for a place to farm. She had been working for the Department of Agriculture in Massachusetts. She had actually studied soil science uh, in college and had a degree in that and had always wanted to farm and to find a farm partner in her 80s. Um, so she took this trip and really loved the Finger Lakes area where um, my farm was located. And then she met this nice man at a, I think at a dance, it may have been a country dance. And before she would let him kiss her, she said, you have to agree to farm with me and make babies. And he had a job on Wall Street, working for a firm that did research about other firms in order to buy them up, something like that. And was really ready to do something radically different. And Amy is a very lovely woman. And he said, all right. <laughs> so the two of them moved out to um, the Rochester area and first worked in its carpenters. And Greg then came to work at Rose Valley Farm. They had bought a piece of land, but he had no experience farming at all. 
And Ami had studied with a third soil science in the garden all her life, so she had some background, but he really had none. So he was an intern for a year at Rose Valley and then stayed on as a hired uh, worker and learned tons, um, worked for a year for some other farm and acquired some other um, machine skills and things like that. And then when I decided to leave Rose Valley, he decided he would leave too. And the CSA offered to stay with Rose Valley, but um, David Stern didn't want the CSA. So they agreed to stay with Greg and me and to help us find a, p- a place to start the farm over again. So in 1997, Greg and I looked at many pieces of land, and the best place that we found was the land that belonged to Doug Cry. We made an agreement with him to rent some of it. And at that time, um, Greg and Annie's daughter, Helen, was was a baby. So she wanted to stay home and take care of the baby. And she was working part-time for North New York. But after a few years, um, Helen was going to school. So Annie said that she wanted to work on the farm, too. And, and so that's what we did. And she became the faith partner. And that's how I found them. I do just love the structure that you've got that uh, that allowed you to absorb them into the farming operation in a really meaningful and consequential way um, as as owners and business partners. And, it, you know, as in any partnership that's very intense or a marriage, you know, it's not always easy. You don't always agree on things. You have intense and, um, you know, severe disagreements over things. And one of the things I regret is that we did not, from the beginning, establish a really good way of resolving conflicts. But we did eventually resolve them, but it would have been better if we had um, written up for ourselves a conflict resolution policy that we could really use. So in my work on the Agricultural Justice Project, which is a whole other piece of work that I've been doing in my life, that is one of the things that we require of the farms and, and food businesses that get the food justice certification. They have to have a clear method. We don't dictate what it is, but it has to be a clear way to resolve conflicts and grievances with no retaliations um, that everybody understands and can use when they need it. I think the Agricultural Justice Project and, and your work around all of those social justice issues is, is probably, um, it's a whole nother podcast. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so Liz, I'd like to turn like we do at the end of all of our shows to our, our lightning round and ask you just a few, uh, well, just a few short questions. Um, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I love the basket leader because if you set up your rows really carefully, you can kill the first flesh of weeds before they get ahead of you. And then you only have a few inches that you have to hold and lead by hand. What kind of a tractor do you drive that under? An Alice Chalmers G, which I bought at right. an auction for 1800 bucks, but now they're a little more expensive in there. What's your favorite resource when you've got questions about farming? 
Where do you turn? Well, I love going to NOFA conferences. And for the 40-some years of our existence, we've held these gatherings and surveys and workshops where people teach one another what they've learned. So learning from other farmers. And I have a problem I ask my farming neighbors how they deal with it. I don't, I don't really read things. I go see how it's being done and whether it works. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Oh, that's a hard one. I don't know. I really love both carrots and leeks. I have a special affinity for them. But then there's asparagus and garlic. And <laughs> I'm not uh, a very good person, but I really love fresh vegetables. And that was a great thing at the Chinese conference. Wow, they really fed good food. And most of it came from shared harvest from the other CSA farms around China. They made a big effort to gather the food from those farms. Oh, boy. Chinese food with fresh organic vegetables? Mm-mm. <laughs> it's a real, probably a different take on what we're getting when we order takeout. Oh, yes. Definitely. <laughs> a lot of garlic. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing when you were just getting started, what would it be? Don't give up. You made the right choice and stick at it. <laughs> Don't listen to the people who say you're crazy or your college roommate who says, your team would never do anything as irresponsible as what you're doing. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't listen to those people, Elizabeth. We're really grateful to have you as part of the movement. Well, thank you. Um, I've enjoyed my life. I think of it as my life in summer camp. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for making the time today. And and now it's probably time for you to go back to sleep and continue getting over that jet lag. No, actually, I am going to... uh, what is the next thing on my list? Um, I have to write my semi-annual report to a funder for NOFA who keeps our policy work going. Express our gratitude again and ask them for more. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thanks, Grace. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 45 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Henderson. That's H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. It's been a while since I made a big deal out of it, but I really work hard to make the show notes on Farmer to Farmer podcast.com a valuable resource by providing quotes from the show and links to the resources that are mentioned in the course of the conversation. You're going to find a ton of them for this episode. Just encourage you to pop on over there and have a look. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.